Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 275. Today is Sunday the 29th of April 2018. And this interview is with Tom Goodwin, who's a repeat guest on the show. The last one was back in 2014. Since then, it seems that's been a whirlwind and everything has changed. Tom is now Executive Vice President and Head of Innovation at Zenith, which is part of the Publicist Media Group. He's an industry provocateur and is massively followed on LinkedIn, contributing frequently to titles such as The Guardian, TechCrunch, Forbes, Wired, British GQ, AdAge, and the World Economic Forum. In this podcast with Tom, we look at the key ingredients for driving change, how brands and organizations need to adapt to survive, including the need for a rehumanization of business. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Tom Goodwin. My goodness. Um, I don't have that many repeat offenders on my podcast, but you <laughs> you and I uh, began uh, or hung out for our first time in September 2014, you yes. uh, you position yourself as futurologist, talking about the future of advertising and marketing, and and how has the future treated you, Tom? Tell us who you are, <laughs> where you are these days. Uh, the future's been good. I call from the future now. Um, so I'm Tom Goodwin, uh, EVP Head of Innovation for Zenith in the US, um, but also uh, now author of a book and sort of frequent speaker at events and general. I mean, it sounds slightly um, sort of pretentious, but general provocateur as well. I like to sort of challenge how people think. Well, let's, as you say, let's do some provocating. <laughs> um, it's, it's not what you say you do, it's what you do. So yeah. um, your book, Digital Darwinism, yeah. um, one, of the, one of the lines that obviously spoke to me was uh, towards the end, you say, hey, it's weird to me that hairdressers don't work around office hours. <laughs> Yeah, totally love that line because I worked at L'Oreal in the hairdressing area. And it really was, it's so frustrating when you have to sort of take off hours that are worthwhile for you to accommodate the way that they operate. Yeah. I, I was thinking in some ways that sentence kind of explains why we are where we are in so many businesses. I think it does. I mean, it makes me sound like a terrible person as well. I have this um, frequent concern that I feel like one of these first world problems, uh, people on the internet that kind of moans about things when, when people are dying in the world. It also makes me feel very millennial where somehow I expect the entire world to, to sort of revolve around me. Um, but the reality is that those explanations don't matter. You know, we do have a generation of people now that are inherently spoiled. Uh, they expect to get content from anywhere in the world that's ever been recorded uh, in 4K resolution immediately, uh, probably for free, and then have the audacity to sort of complain that their ads spoiling their enjoyment. Um, so the reality is that we have a generation of people that are spoiled and do expect the world to revolve around them, and they know enough about technology to not be able to excuse any uh, fumbles or errors that companies make. Um, and we can either deal with that reality or we can complain about it. And when you look to airlines, hotels, car rental companies, banks, insurers, retailers, hairdressers, car garages, um, the reality is they've got very used to being in the sort of production business. Uh, they are kind of industrial 
uh, behemoths that are amazing at negotiating prices for oils to stick in shampoos, and they're incredible at figuring out how to change a tire as quickly as possible or spray paint your car or get a TV in your room. But they've not been sort of orchestrated around consumer needs and in particular changing consumer needs. They're very good at perfecting what they do. Um, I, I just think there's a really interesting angle to explore. So whether you're a doctor, um, whether you work in a small store, it would just be incredible to realize how things have changed, how things will change, and then sort of map how you operate around that. Well, so if you're a doctor, in a sense, it's a little yeah. bit, it's a lighter type of environment to change. I mean, albeit you have to, you know, you have your education and all that. But if, yeah. you're, if you're a large organization and, and you are leading it, Tom, how, yeah. how does one become fitter? Because, I mean, that's yeah. in the end of the day what we're trying to do in the survival of the fittest and dar- digital Darwinism. Yeah. You've, got your, you've got your legacy systems, you've got your heritage values, your you know, employees that have been around for 30 years. Yeah. And, and you've got to still deal with short-term profits. Yeah. So. It's an extremely challenging situation. Um, so when I kind of joke about being a provocateur, <laughs> I am aware of the fact that I am extremely annoying in asking these extremely relevant and timely questions that are actually like very, very hard to answer. Um, I mean, that's why the sort of opening passage of the book is very much based on this idea of how would you construct your business if you were to construct it today? Because most, and I don't want to sound overly um, negative or critical, but most companies today are the result of many, many changes that they've made over years. Um, lots and lots of serial adaptations to systems and processes. Um, a culture probably rooted, again, in the kind of production environment of the past. Um, and it's very hard for them to change properly. It's extremely easy for them to change slightly. Um, so if you're an airline, uh, you probably will have a nice app, and the app probably will allow you to uh, select your seat and it'll get you your boarding pass in the wallet um, and you may get things like boarding updates um, and that's great and that's something we should appreciate but the moment you try and do something in remotely sort of existential or significant like change your flight uh, or try and speak to someone um, <laughs> something crazy like that um, to get refunds uh, even to do things like find schedules um, you suddenly realize that something like the airline structure is built on codes and coding from the 1960s and 70s. And there are kind of material problems in the way that it's being constructed, which don't allow you to do that. Um, so normally, if you do want to change your flight, uh, God help you, it's thousands of keystrokes from someone sort of frantically clicking away. And if you ever look at their screen, it's some kind of uh, blue screen with like MS-DOS running or, or something terrible like that. They're still using um, dot matrix printers at, at the gates um, to sort of hand manifestos um, over to um, to the pilots. So, so the, the the unfair reality of today is that these companies that have built themselves right now um, for the modern age with the latest technology, they're the ones that are, are, are performing, you know, most greatly, um, and they're being held to account by different standards to legacy companies because they are startups and growth is all that matters and profitability can come later. Um, so we're in this deeply unfair business environment, which suits these young thrusting companies more than, than old legacy businesses. Um, but the skill is finding out how can these companies change? What do they have that other companies wish they had? Um, and how do you sort of plot a path to a better future? I, I, in my podcast I did with Seth Godin, 
Yeah. He said, what I do is I write books for the large part that really express things that people already know, but <laughs> does it in a way that wakes them up. And one of the things that you said actually kind of reveyed, woke up something in me, which is think about your business if you were starting it today. And maybe there's an interesting path there, which is actually think about what that looks like. Because yeah. the challenge is, you know, well, how can I incrementally change, you know, make my app better? But actually, if I were to be able to completely embody that thought and put aside for now my next end of June quarterly profits, put aside my I have to take care of a legacy heritage system. And yeah. I have the wrong people in place. What actually would that look like? And then start plotting forward the you know the incrementally because you can't do you just can't wipe out thirty thousand people overnight or whatever yeah. it is and yeah. then and then move from there. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like a particularly um, crazy idea. Um, I think the reality is, I mean, part of the reason why I did this in a book is because it's actually quite difficult to have these conversations face to face. They are kind of the corporate equivalent of therapy. Hmm. I mean, you could actually ask these questions about yourself and your you know, the home that you might live in or own or the marriage that you may or may not have. Um, the reality is it's actually quite uncomfortable to ask decision, ask questions about our past um, because um, somehow it, it assumes that there's an element of blame or it assumes mm, that there's right. an element of stupidity. Whereas the reality is that every single person, every single company has got to this place because of wise, sensible decisions with lots of data and very well-meaning people. Um, but that doesn't mean that this is a great way to move forward. And, and, and most businesses tend to be very retrospective in virtually all of the metrics. Um, so everything is about where the share price has been. Everything's about how sales numbers have been. Everything's about, um, uh, you know, the, the P&L of last year, the work that you did last year. We look at other people within the industry and changes that are case studies on Harvard Business Review uh, from the 1990s. We look at work that one at can from the late 2000s. Um, everything we do is backwards looking. Um, and when you tell people to look into the future, um, I think there's this assumption that everything's impossible to predict. And if you speak confidently about how things will change, um, that you either pretend to know more than you do, um, or you're lying, or that you're kind of this smoke and mirrors thing. And that's certainly true for some things. Um, <laughs> you did point out before we came on air that I made a prediction in 2015 about the rise of 3D printing. Um, and that's a good example of me just being entirely wrong. Um, so we have to be kind of careful when, when people uh, talk about these things. But there are other things which I think we can be quite confident in predicting. Um, like the world is not going to buy fewer things online. Um, you know, this is not a blip. Um, we're not going to be in an environment where, um, you know, we use our phones less for any time soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so to build your business on the assumption that mobiles are a key part of your business, that people have less time, that people are more distracted, that people want things to be more simple. You know, I don't think that's a stupid place to think about building your business. Hmm. So uh, I was, you know, you talk about the these different ages uh, with electricity and then internet and this post-digital age. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you, I was wondering if you had any brands or companies that you would be prepared to identify as being well poised to deal with this post-digital age, and if not, 
at least what are the characteristics yeah. that you would define as being ready for this age? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, probably the best example that springs to mind is, is a company called Lemonade. And I don't know how well this company is known in the UK, uh, but in the US, it is a uh, a contents insurance provider that is entirely app focused. Um, and usually for me, it actually uses chatbots at the very heart of the business, which is not something I normally uh, love. Um, but it has created an entire new customer flow where to take out an insurance policy, you do it using chatbots on your phone. Um, to The quote system is incredibly fast and simple, where it's basically $10 a month, pretty much regardless of what you own. Uh, the business model is to give back a share of profits to good causes um, because that's how you know lots of businesses want to be these days. But above all else, it changes the way that you um, put in claims. So if you have an accident with your phone, you want to make a claim, it asks you to record a video testimony on your phone and then you email that off using a chat uh, app and then about two or three minutes later, you get a decision on whether your claim um, is valid or not. And what is beautiful about this and massively post-digital is it completely kind of subverts all of the assumptions about insurance. So we assume that we want to make it as hard as possible for people to claim because that will put people off making claims. Um, we want them to fill in lots of paperwork, which someone will have to sort of process and our costs of processing, it will be quite significant. Where instead to understand that actually the act of recording a video is less likely to make people lie, I think is genius. Um, the notion that you're more likely to now buy this insurance because you know they're a kind of transparent, future-thinking, um, fair company means that lots and lots of people will tell other people about this company. Um, so it's a very good example for me of using technology, but above all else, actually working around people and, and their needs. Um, yeah. yes, you talk about, you know, it's like having these right insights. And it reminds me of a time in my past where with our fidelity programs, we got pissed when the redemption levels got higher. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, crazy insights or crazy, uh, crazy way. You mentioned business models and yeah. I did, I did want to talk to you about business models in, in regard to the internet itself, or at least to social media. Yeah. And, and I was wondering what your perspective is. And maybe, you know, there are some schools of thought that say that, Facebook and Google and company are in a predicament because of their business model based on advertising. What's your opinion? I could talk at length about this. Um, I mean, a couple of things that may be loosely collected, collectively come together to form a narrative. Um, I mean, it's weird that we just assume that advertising is the way to monetize the internet. Um, I think it's one of the worst things that's ever happened to us as a species. Um, is to take the most valuable things that have ever been known, whether it's entertainment, whether it's information, whether it's uh, connections to people. Uh, and just to kind of assume that the only way to make money from it is ad from ads, I think is a, a terrible thing that's happened. Um, I think we sometimes forget that the internet itself is not a media channel. It's just a pipe to pull other people's content through. Um, so when you say that, when people say that the internet's going to kill TV, you know, it's like saying that uh, electromagnetic waves are going to kill radio. Um, it's a it's a sort of farcical way to think about it. Um, the reality is that I think we probably need to find a more sensible contract um, for everyone in the modern world 
And that means ensuring people that make quality content get paid properly for it, ensuring that there's a level of duty of care that people who um, provide this content provide, um, making sure there's a more sensible way that we deal with personal data. Um, but above all else, I think it needs to be a conversation and it needs to be something where we work together for a solution that acts in everyone's interest. Um, and it doesn't mean doing something rash. It doesn't mean that stopping all forms of advertising. It doesn't mean that um, there's going to be a two-tier internet where rich people get to not see ads and everyone else is screwed. Uh, and it doesn't mean having no data. Like I actually, I'm very happy to give significant, significant parts of my personal data to companies um, as long as one, they tell me or they show me what they're going to do with it. Uh, two, I can trust them. Uh, three, they're going to keep it secure and have decent systems in place to make sure they don't get hacked. Um, but above all else, the, the fourth one, which I write about a bit in the book, which is this idea of privacy trading. So how can I get something in value, uh, of value in return for it? Like I'm, I'm happy for uh, my credit card company to know I'm in Canada by tracking my location if it means that my transactions are less likely to be declined. Um, I'm happy for my airline to know where I am uh, because maybe they can send me a message saying you're really running late for your flight, you know, <laughs> stop messing around. Um, I'm happy for retailers to know what I've been bought, what I've bought before because it'll make it easier for me to buy the same items again. Um, and we, we see examples of this already. I mean, um, Google traffic exists because it's able to track all of our data on, on, on precisely how and where we're moving. Um, and we don't have issues with that because it provides us with something in return. We're happy for our Uber driver to see where we are because we know that's the only way for them to, to pick us up. So I think we need a much more progressive, open, sophisticated, honest conversation about where this is all going because I think we can find a solution that works for everyone. When I listened to at the beginning, I was thinking regulation seems to be the answer. And yet, if you look at how the Senate hearings went with Mr. Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah, that was very easy to predict, I think. Um, the, the, I mean, regulation seems to be very slow. Um, the reality is that whether it's the bureaucracy of government, whether it's the particular people that are involved in government, um, I think we would be sort of rather foolish to assume that that process is going to get faster. Um, or better. And, yeah, or better. Um and actually, I think lots of companies, I mean, I mean to write a piece about this, but lots of companies have succeeded because they kind of hack regulation as well. They find the gray spaces. Um, so whether it's the success of vaping, because no one really knows if that's sort of tobacco or not, um, whether it's the success of um, Facebook, because there isn't really a sense of IP and who owns what content. And is it okay for me to go to Beyonce concert and live stream on Facebook? No one really knows yet. Um, whether you look at um, Airbnb, where you don't have to play by the same rules as, as bed and breakfast do, um, whether it's Uber and kind of hacking the entire process by which meter-driven fares were, were paid for. Um, there's a kind of uncomfortable relationship with legal um, situations, moral situations, and what these companies do. And I think uh, we would be wise to assume that companies are always going to exploit these areas and we would hope the governments get faster at them. We'd hope the governments would predict this stuff and, and sort of almost proactively regulate. But I think the reality is that's probably not going to change that fast. So I wanted to um, reflect on something, Tom. Which, um, <laughs> yeah. I love the fact that you uh, mentioned that the ad model is screwy. Uh, this coming from a chap whose livelihood is based on such things at Zenith, yeah. right? So... 
in your podcast with Daniel Rowles, um, you the da- digital marketing podcast, which by the way I highly recommend in general. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned that you think the ad agency business is perhaps the most broken of all. Can you elaborate on that, or correct me if I'm wrong, and elaborate otherwise? Um, I mean, you're definitely not wrong. Uh, I mean, it's quite it's quite two faced of me to write a book about what would your company look like today if you set it up now, and then work in an industry that's generally not particularly well constructed for today. And it's important that you realize that I can be critical of it and accept my role in it. And also not be pointing fingers at people and saying that we've let everyone down or we're stupid or we're greedy or anything. Um, but the reality is that the the current situation is not really working particularly well for anybody. Um, you know, maybe it's working all right for Facebook and Google, but other than that, it's it's generally um, not working in people's interests. Whether it's the kind of rise of fake news, whether it's um, sort of traffic that is measured in strange ways, whether it's the rise of ignorance and Trump and all sorts of political opinions that people might struggle with. Um, so it would, be, it would be nice to work towards a better place. It would be nice to figure out, you know, how can we use limited amounts of personal information to create advertising which works harder and performs better and is more valuable? How do we therefore make sure that normal people are served by ads which, which they find um, more helpful? Um, how do companies use modern technology um, to get people to sort of pay for ways in, in ways that are much more f- uh, frictionless and, and fast. Um, we need to sort of establish a structure to do that as well. Like at the moment, we very much um, based ourselves around media channels and workflows that actually don't work particularly well in the modern age. Uh, we tend, you know, when the internet came along, we sort of bolted on another department. Then when mobile became big, we bolted on another department or we found another group of agencies um, then social, uh, then voice, then chatbots. So we've become these kind of um, huge, messy organizations which are entirely focused around technologies and tactics rather than focused on people and rather than focused on ideas. And I don't, I don't think there's a way to, to kind of tidy this up slowly. Um, you know, what Publicis is doing with um, sort of single teams to serve clients is interesting, but I think we probably need to work a bit harder to have client organizations that, that reflect that structure um, as well. I think, uh, I mean, even things like the separation of media and creative um, continues to kind of blow my mind on a near hourly basis. Um, but it's, it's difficult to change this because the, the system that exists today is very good at managing itself this way. And, and most agencies are there because it's easiest to buy themselves in this format. Um, but yeah, it would be great to um, to sort of figure out a way to destroy this whole system and start again. Um, and it'll be interesting to see that how that happens. One particular thing that, that concerns me is, you know, by the moment that you you start speaking to someone in this industry, you've basically already decided how you're going to solve the problem because you're in front of the specialist that does that. Um, it's a bit like having a bad back where the moment you've decided you need to speak to a surgeon you know, woe and behold, the answer is surgery. Absolutely. Um, and it's, um, <laughs> it's you know, imagine going to like a garage and being told, oh, you know, we don't know what the problem is. We need to get the tire specialist in here. Like that would be a very unsatisfactory way to fix a car. Um, so it, it will be interesting to see how we can sort of move forward, how we can understand that there's no such thing as a digital agency, how we can realize that social is just how the modern world works, that the mobile phone is merely a screen through which you access the same internet. When we get a bit more mature 
um, and sort of quote-unquote post-digital, then I think we're all being a better place. Uh, yeah, I mean, an, uh, you as an ad man, quote-unquote, and myself as a consultant, <laughs> I hate to hesitate to say consultant, but quote-unquote, <laughs> we're both, uh, you know, trying to help organizations that uh, where our business model doesn't necessarily correspond to what they need. Yeah, which, which is a mindset change. So um, one of the other things I liked in your book was this, um, your reflection about how you were once allowed to travel first class on Singapore Air, which, of course, is the, you know, the premier airline <laughs> in the world. And yet they, they made you exchange your boarding pass in return for get, lending you a charger. And then you had your, your comment about the Turkish Air. And yet you have a company like Apple that allows you to come into a, to a, a store, flash a certain number of accessories or whatever, and then leave in a cashierless uh, experience, which, you know, is, is working towards that trustability of, of the audience, yeah. of course, with, with safeguards. But, you know, it made me think of retail, which is another area that clearly is under severe pressure. And in your mind... Who do you think is getting that problem straight? Well, I mean, the the immediate answer and the one that all the bells go off and I win the game is uh, Amazon. Uh, and for reasons which have been discussed many times before. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to repeat the same uh, stuff that people say because it's obvious. I mean, one thing in particular that's interesting about them for me is... Uh, you know, the Amazon Go store, store has technology in the background. Like we always assume that the store of the future has TVs you can interact with and it will use iBeacons to send you special offers and there'll be mirrors that you can try on clothes and it will tell you what else to wear. Um, it's always been very physical demonstrations of technology and actually what the Amazon Go store does really well is it puts technology in the background. It's basically saying if you're a person in 2018, how do you want a store to feel? Right, let's employ all of the technology we can to make it feel that way. Um, and it just so happens that you don't see any of it or feel any of it. It's just it's the lack of technology which is notable. Um, you know, their strategy between physical retail and online retail is very interesting. Um, although, oddly, I actually think their online experience these days is pretty lousy. Um, I think that we've tended to take the kind of catalogue structure uh, and sort of taxonomy of the past, and we now create very boring places um, where increasingly it's quite hard to actually establish what you're buying, um, and increasingly things arrive and they're a different size to what you expected, <laughs> and, and strange things like that. So um, I, I think what we need in retail is a much more empathetic approach. Uh, we, we tend to think that we love data and we love technology, and we put out spreadsheets where we measure how long people spend in store, and we see that if people spend longer, then they buy more stuff. Um, and then lo and behold, we end up with long lines at cashiers, and we think that that's a good thing because people are spending longer in store. Um, so I'd like to just see a much more empathetic and creative approach. Um, Tiger, which um, I think is quite big in Europe, but not yep. really um, in the US marketplace. I mean, that's a great example of how can you upsell people and cross-sell people? How can you make a store somewhere you go even when you don't really want anything? Um, so there's something interesting there. Argos has always been fascinating for me because it always feels about 20 years behind and 20 years in the future at the same time. Mm. And it's just about coming into its own now. Um, so so there, are, there are places like that that I think are getting it right. But I, I would like the learning be that companies just need to be much more sensible 
you know, I don't want to indulge on the Singapore Airlines example too much because it sounds quite spoiled, but it's weird to me that they find it completely fine to give you $250 bottles of champagne when you get on a plane, but the idea that they might lose an iPhone charger worth a dollar um, is so worrying to them that they have to confiscate your boarding pass. And if I, I feel like businesses should have like a head of a global head of common sense, uh, and their job is to just experience various parts of the company and go, wait a minute, this is nuts. Um, you know, why don't we brand these charges with Singapore Airlines and say a gift from Singapore Airlines? Um, and then rather than having the sort of champagne, I'll actually enjoy that moment even more. Yeah, like the return on investment becomes the word of mouth. Yeah. And, and this object that you get to show up every once in a while. Hey, yeah. do you have a charger? Oh, it's, it's Mark Singapore Air. <laughs> there's, there's no doubt. The, um, the, that silliness is so, so prevalent. And my, and my point about... Um, sorry, I'm just going to kill that one second. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's beeping off and on. Um, you, you mentioned Amazon. You know, at the very beginning, they rarely ever sent an email. And yeah. it seems to me that they're already in this pressure mode of trying to build up their sales. And, and I can only imagine that getting worse as the pressure on short-term profitability, especially when Bezos has to step down yeah. and, and it won't be able to pressure it off. So we'll see. Um, you mentioned empathy. And of course, uh, your book talks a lot about the, the human component uh, beyond technology or uh, you, I mean, I, the way I describe it is where I would say from you is empathy is the killer app. Yes. How do you believe that companies should be embedding and scaling empathy into their organization, therefore? Well, that's an extremely difficult question. Um, I think, I mean, one is the acceptance that it's absolutely essential. Um, and therefore driving a kind of culture that supports it. I think secondly, and this sounds more rebellious than I mean it to sound, and I'm not, I'm not a hater of data, and I'm not sort of mathematically inept. You know, I do have a sort of master's degree in structural engineering. That'll but I think, we, <laughs> I think we, need to, um, we need to stop worshipping at the altar that is data and spreadsheets, um, because probably the ultimate killer of empathy is an environment where when you make a decision based on gut, people think that um, you must be an idiot um, for having the audacity to do that. Um, people seem to think that in order to have opinions, you must have reams and reams of data behind it. Um, and I think that's nonsense. Like, I actually think we have way more data within the decisions that we make than we realize. Uh, if you look at how someone drives a car, they're probably accessing billions of data points every second. Um, and yet, if you ask them how they drove a car, they would be quite embarrassed about it. You know, they wouldn't be able to explain why they'd made the decisions they'd made. They wouldn't realize that when they got to a four-way stop, they were actually checking people's body language in other cars and reading their eyes to figure out if they were likely to go. So I actually think um, we need to have a culture that acknowledges the fact that our gut feelings are based on much more data than we can process. That lots of incredibly important things can't actually exist on a spreadsheet. Um, the, lot, the most important things that actually matter in business definitely don't exist on a spreadsheet. Um, and we need to kind of accept um, an environment which is more supportive of people's ability to make decisions on that gut and on that empathy and on that feeling. Um, when I entered the industry in, in sort of 2001, um, we didn't really have any data. And um, I, when I look back, we made excellent decisions all day long. Um, but now we have so much data, we become slaves to it. And it means that the ideas that brands have in advertising seem to be less bold. 
and there appears to be brands that have less strong points of view, less less of a reason to exist. Um, and I think it's because people feel very vulnerable if they express opinions that they can't support with data. Um, so I'd love to see us um, make steps to celebrate gut. You know, we work in this industry hopefully because we're really good at it. Like we, we've now succeeded in our careers for 16, 20, 25 years. Like we, we're probably just very attuned to people and how they make decisions and what they like. Um, so let's be more confident in our convictions. It makes me think of this notion of the return on investment in weirdness and <laughs> and, and quirkiness that Seth yeah. uh, talks about. You know, it's sort of, if you listen to all the politically correct data type of decisions we make, we'll end up with a whole lot of plain vanilla. And, yes. you know, this ass, this is Judy on, a, you know, with a headache. This is Judy after the aspirin again. And, it, you know, bloody hell. Anyway, I think <laughs> hopefully we shall move along. Tom, <laughs> it's been great having you on. Uh, thanks for coming on. So tell us more about how to get your book, where it's available and how to best get in touch with you, please. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me on. My um, pleasure. It's rather complex right now. So if you want to buy the book in digital form, uh, you can buy it from iBooks on iTunes. Uh, you can buy it in Kindle form on Amazon. Uh, if you want to buy it in physical form and you're in the UK, then you can buy it right now uh, from Amazon or Waterstones or W. Smiths or all sorts of weird and wonderful places. Um, in the US and globally, it's launching in about two weeks' time. Um, so if you just hold on for two weeks, you'll be able to get hold of a copy. Um, I love talking to people and hearing what they think about stuff. Um, my, my main success has not come from having the answers, really, but having questions, um, which is why I like to sort of provoke debate on, on sort of social media. Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter. I think I'm Tom F. Goodwin. Um, I'm quite active on LinkedIn with, with the same uh, Tom F. Goodwin sort of handle. Um, and genuinely, I'd love to, to hear any comments or any thoughts or people telling me I'm wrong, um, especially with evidence to suggest <laughs> why and how. Mm. That'd be great. Or, or just to say I'm an idiot, that's fine. Well, um, Tom, yeah. you, you are far from it. You have uh, got a half a million or so followers on LinkedIn <laughs> and uh, in kudos for that and and you do ask really interesting questions and you do make great observations so i highly recommend people who want to have a little bit of provocation go follow what you're up to so thanks for coming on the show tom it's been great great to be here thanks minter thanks for having listened to this recording of the minter dialogue show you'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com if you enjoyed the show please like the handy facebook button or better yet Head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Josh Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of
Bridges in our palms make colors blend and look ugly in the end. But they're pretty in their own disgusting values. We'd hang our portraits in the hallways, make our house guests cringe. Oh, I wouldn't care. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.